Last hour, we completed the introduction to the course. So at this hour, we will get into the principles themselves of general hermeneutics. But before we get into the principles, I'll give you a little introduction just to cement this into your minds. We're dealing with the science and art of interpretation. And we will look at general hermeneutics. And let me give you a description of the hermeneutic that we will be using, the general hermeneutic. I've already distinguished what we will be doing with other hermeneutics. And I'll give you more on those distinctions at the end of class. We'll look at the history later. I intend to give you a a brief smidgen of it, just enough so that you have an idea of what what the history is and what the major other approaches are. I've already mentioned some of them. But we want to narrow in on what is the hermeneutic that we will be utilizing and what is it all about. First of all, let's look at the word itself. Actually, two words. We'll start with the word hermeneutics. It's actually a word that that occurs in Scripture. Would somebody look up Acts chapter 14? And I'd like for somebody to read that. The word that we utilize is related to a word in Acts chapter, or the concept is related to what we have in Acts chapter 14. Who's got verse 11? You got it? 11 and 12. Now, the background here is Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra, and they're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, highly paganized, and in fact, uh, idolatrous people. And they believed in the Greek gods. And notice what uh, how they respond to the message of Paul. You want to read 11 and 12? Read it loudly. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying to the Lyconian lang- in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men, and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Okay, did you catch that? They were impressed with uh, what Paul was teaching. In fact, so impressed that they thought the gods had descended down and were amongst them. And they called Barnabas Zeus because Barnabas didn't speak And they described Paul as Hermes. That was one of the Greek gods. The word Hermes is related to the word Hermeneia. And in that religious background, uh, they had the idea that the gods, when they spoke, they were so far above man that they were not understandable. They were distant. It was hard to understand them, so they needed something like a what we have in the in the Bible, a prophet. They needed somebody to bring it down to earth, if you will, the message. And here Paul is the one that is speaking, so they identify Barnabas as the quiet God, and they identify Paul as the interpreter of the gods, Hermes. And that's what Hermes was. He was an interpreter of the gods. And the Greek word, Hermeneia, has that basic idea of interpreting something, the idea of interpretation. Now, the word occurs in the New Testament not too many times. 
but it has the idea in First uh, Corinthians fourteen twenty six. Would somebody look that one up? Would somebody look up also Matthew one twenty three? This is a different word. We have words that are related to hermeneia. Sometimes it has a preposition preceding them. But I want you to see that this is a word that comes out of the Bible. Somebody also, Jim, you're familiar with Hebrews. Why don't you get 7-2? Who's got 1 Corinthians 14-26? Now this verse, 1 Corinthians 14-26, here's the Greek word, hermeneia, as the noun form, has the idea in the noun form of an interpretation. And hermeneia has the idea of to translate something. And it can be a translation from one language to another, or it can be in the sense of translating a meaning so that it's understandable. And 1 Corinthians 14.26 is the noun form. You Who had that one? You got it? What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue. Or okay, this is, in this context, it's actually a spiritual gift. The ability to interpret a language that a person does not know. It, it, this is a supernatural ability. And it's to translate the meaning from one language into, obviously in this context, would be Greek, so that everyone could understand what was being spoken as that person was speaking in tongues. But the word interpretation there is ermeneia the Greek word. And that's the word that we get hermeneutics from, hermeneia. Now, the verb form is that uh, Hebrews 7, 2. Oh, shit. Can you start with the verse 1? Yeah, go ahead. Read verse 1. Yeah, if it starts the sentence there. Uh, for this Melchizedek, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, as he was returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Okay. Melchizedek, by translation, it says, means king of righteousness. So it has the idea of translating something Melech in Hebrew is king. Sedek is righteousness. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he's also king of Salem, but it's what is interpreted there is the meaning of the name from the Hebrew in this case. And that's an example of the verb form. So the point I'm making here is hermeneutics comes from a Bible concept and it ha- it's related to Bible words related to the idea of interpreting or translating and that's why we use that word. Now there's also the other word that we've been using exegesis exegeomai that's a different word that also comes out of the Bible. Let's see I skipped over what did I give Matthew one twenty three? do you have that one Marcy? Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, Emmanuel, also a Hebrew name that's translated into Greek, God with us. Now, in this case, it refers to our Lord Jesus Christ.
But the word translated there is actually a combination of this Hebrew word with a preposition preceding it. So it has basically the same idea. And there's some other words that have like a preposition preceding them in other context. Now, the the word exegeomai, a very important passage. Somebody look up John 1.18. And the basic meaning of exegeomai is to explain. And it's in the verb form that the noun form, does, exegesis, the noun form does not occur in the New Testament, but there would be a corresponding noun in the Greek language. It just doesn't occur in the New Testament. So exegeomai is where we get the word exegesis. And notice what uh, John 1.18 has to say. Who wants to read it? You got it, Beverly? I want to see God in time. The only God's son who is in the bosom of God. Now, who's that referring to? No one has seen the Father at any time, but who's in the bosom? Jesus. Okay, notice the last phrase there. That's fine. He has declared other versions, New American Standard, explained him. You could even substitute, he has exegeted him. Exegeomai. And how has Jesus explained the Father? Jesus on several occasions has said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In other words, everything that makes up the Father, you can see in Jesus Christ. And the only way you understand the Father is by understanding Jesus Christ. The incarnation reveals or exegetes the Father. So there's the key passage. Now, it doesn't occur too often, but uh, there's a few passages. The, the main one would be the John 1.18. So those are your hermeneutical terms, and it already gives you an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about hermeneutics. Now, I gave you this last week. Mickelson's quote, this is the goal of everything that we will attempt to do. So it's good to start off with the same statement. Hermeneutics and exegesis, the goal is to find out the meaning of a statement for the author. And I stressed that last time. What did the author intend and how did the first hearers or readers understand what he wrote? So it's to find out the meaning of a statement for the author and for the first hearers or readers and thereupon to transmit that meaning to modern readers. Statement of? Say that again. To find out the meaning of a statement. Yeah, it, it has the same idea. That's what Mickelson intends, the idea of or from might be more precise the way you're putting it. Our course will end at the comma. We will attempt to understand what the author intended to communicate and how those initial readers or hearers understood the original author. So what's the name of the class? Yep. Uh, this actually gets into trying to communicate what we understand. And we're, we're just going to get that first phase of Mickelson. But on my chart, if you remember, I include exposition uh, based on what Nicholson says there. So it includes communicating it. It's just that this course, we've got it so packed, there's just no room. <laughs> so the bottom line is we're looking at what did the author intend, and I distinguished that last time. I mentioned that uh, 
postmodernism goes directly against this idea, particularly in the area of literature. We also mentioned last time we will attempt to determine meaning based on three major principles. We'll expand each one of these, and then we'll add to them. Number one, meaning is determined by understanding the laws of grammar or utilizing the laws of grammar and applying those laws to the sentences of Scripture. It will also involve the facts of history, also very, very important. And we'll talk about that next week. And it'll involve the framework of context. These are your three most important principles of this hermeneutical approach. That's why we call it the grammatical laws of grammar, historical facts of history, contextual method, framework of context. So that's your description of what we will be doing throughout the rest of this course. The need for the course, let's explore that aspect. First of all, just to understand accurately. We've already talked a little bit about this in our introduction. Why it's important, but it's also not only important, but it's a need that we have. And hermeneutics attempts to give us guidelines that guide us in the understanding of the biblical text. And all of the principles are designed to do that. We're dealing with communication. Any communication, you have a communicator that has ideas in his head. He's trying to convey an idea from his mind to a receiver or receptor, a listener, And he does that with a message, and that can be done in a variety of ways. We can speak using sign language. We could communicate by using gestures. We can also communicate using a combination and using words. But there's always a message that a communicator is attempting to communicate from his mind through a message to someone that receives that message. This is kind of basic. So hermeneutics, as I introduced last week, involves all communication, not just biblical communication. It just happens that in the Bible we have a biblical author, and when we speak of a biblical author, we actually have two authors. We have a human author, plus we have the divine author behind the human author that is attempting to communicate the thoughts of God. Remember the 1 Corinthians 2 passage. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God within him. He's trying to communicate spiritual things through spiritual thoughts and words. Well, the biblical author is communicating ideas. These happen to be from God, that God revealed. We have a biblical text, and that's all we have. We can't call Paul up or text him or email him and ask him, what did you mean? We have to take what he wrote in that text and try to understand what he was trying to communicate to that ancient audience. This is the original communication. And when we accurately do that, now we're in a position to understand that communication and then transmit it to a modern audience. Got it? Hermeneutics guides us in all of the process, and we need it. 
We talked about trying to communicate within a marriage last time, and sometimes even that breaks down even after asking questions. So we have a need just in communication in general to understand, and that's what hermeneutics tries to supply. Now, again, because of the nature of Scripture, we also need to bridge several gaps. So secondly, a need to bridge gaps. I think it's in that question. Oh, did he? Well, yeah, in fact, that kind of touches it on it. You mentioned earlier, you know, the body language thing. Seems like one of the challenges in interpreting scripture. Yeah, we don't have body language. We don't have tone, like you say. Uh, we don't have. I'll say, right. I love you. It's not the same thing as I say I love you. Yeah, exactly. I like the latter. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, that's a good point. That's why I emphasize all we have is the text. So we don't have the body language. We don't have the facial expressions. So that's a good point to bring out. And that's all we have to deal with. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to give us that limitation and we are able to still understand what God has communicated. At least we believe that. And hermeneutics helps with all of that. So let's take a look at these gaps that we have. And one of them is what you are bringing out. You know, that's one thing that we don't have available. We can't go directly to the author and and look at his face, or we can't ask him questions. All right? And there are several of these gaps. First of all, we have a language gap. Now, it's it's a good thing to learn the original languages. For the normal, everyday, average believer, uh, that's too far, that's too far removed, that's too impractical. And God can communicate through a translation. So, knowing the original languages is not essential. It's highly advisable. It's a, a great advantage, primarily for the, for the place of precision in understanding. So, you don't want to overlook that. And it's good to be able to have access to people that understand the original language if you need to ask them. And the resource of books and internet sources as well. But that's a gap. We don't speak Aramaic. We don't speak Hebrew. We don't understand Greek. And even taking the languages, we, we are still limited because language changes. And even in studying the original language, and I, I study from the original languages, but even then, the languages change and meanings of words change over time. So language is a, is a, a barrier. Now all of this, the Holy Spirit knows and knows exactly what we need, and is going to give us what we need. But we need to take these into account when we're talking about hermeneutics, because these are things that we need to overcome. And one way of overcoming the language issue, or the gap of language, is to learn the original languages, and then do the best you can from there. We also have a gap of history, in that we don't live in the time frame, and we're removed from the history of the Bible. If you lived in the first century, you would not have that gap, at least in terms of the New Testament teaching. But even the first century people had a gap of history in terms of the Old Testament. 
They're living in the first century, not the patriarchal time frame or mosaic time frame. So we have these gaps, a gap of history. Again, the more that you can understand uh, not only the overall flow of history, but the particular history, and as I said, we'll expand this further. In fact, this is a hermeneutical principle in itself. We'll deal with this historical barrier and try to bridge that gap. Thirdly, related to history, we'll have a cultural gap. And again, we don't live in a Greco-Roman culture, nor do we live in an Egyptian culture. We live in a 21st century culture that is radically different from all of the cultures of the Bible. Now, there's a lot of things that are common throughout history, the nature of man, for example, but the cultural issues change. Again, there's a cultural principle that we will address that helps us to bridge that cultural gap. So we'll talk about that. There's a literary gap. And again, in terms of literature, we're talking about literary types here, primarily. And when we talk about literary styles and form, uh, we'll get into detail how to bridge that gap. So we'll discuss the different literary form that the Bible utilizes. Remember, we have 40 different authors that are writing over a great span of time as well. So there are differences in terms of literary styles historically as well. We'll take a look at that, try to bridge that gap. We have a chronological gap, and it's a good practice to try to fit your passage. Where does it fit in in the overall chronology of events in God's time frame in which you're studying? So it's good to understand the time frame, not just the historical events, not just the historical politics and the things related to the historical things, but particularly the time frame, the chronological time frame. We'll talk about a, a principle called progress of revelation that tries to bridge that gap. That's a particular principle in itself. We have a geographical gap. The Bible didn't all take place in the land of Israel. And certainly we don't live in the land of Israel. So our geography is different. Now, we happen in New Mexico to live in a climate and somewhat of a, an agrarian desert-type environment that is very similar to Palestine, but yet there's, there's differences as well. We don't live near the Jordan River, for example, so we don't have an idea unless you know a little of the geography. We don't know what it means when it speaks of mountains in Israel. In fact, mountains in Israel are different from mountains in New Mexico. So geography comes into play sometimes. Just to illustrate, in, in Mexico we have things like this, where we have kind of an abrupt mountain. You can actually even see some of the layering there. We don't have mountains like that in Israel. So that's different in terms of geography. That's why the city of Albuquerque is down here, whereas in Israel, a lot of cities, and in fact, deliberately, are built on hills. Jerusalem, for example, is at the top of a mountain. The mountains are not like this, with these sharp points. The mountains are more mounded, and it's advantageous to have a city on top of a mound. In fact, everywhere that you go in Israel, if you study 
some of the ancient cities, all of them are on what's called, are, they're called tells. And as you dig down, you find different layers of the city. So they built cities on these high points, and then they would build a wall, depending on the time frame, they would build a wall for defensive purposes. That's true of Jerusalem as well, and many ancient cities. The point I'm making here is that geography is different. So when it talks about mountains, don't think exactly the same way as you would think thinking of the Sandia crest there. And that's true of other things as well. And in fact, when they speak of mountains, they're more hills than they really are, at least in Palestine, than they are in terms of uh, what we would think of as a mountain. When we take, think of a mountain, we're thinking about 12,000 foot or 10,000. All right. Point being, we have a geographical gap. Make sense? So we will try to bridge all of these gaps. We also have a supernatural gap in that God is infinite. Some of the things that he's talking about deal with infinite and eternal things. We live in a material, temporal, finite world. And sometimes God stretches our thinking that he wants us to think about eternal, infinite things, particularly relating to him. So how do we bridge that supernatural gap? that includes infinity and things that we have no concept of. How do you understand the Trinity? Three in one. I mean, that in our thinking, that's contradictory. And yet, that's what the Bible presents. And that's orthodoxy, the doctrine of the Trinity. So it stretches our thinking. So we have to think, perhaps in a logic that is different from the logic that we generally think of in terms of not being able to have three things in one. Okay? So you have a supernatural gap. You also have a philosophical gap. And this is huge. This is where worldviews come in. This is where different views of life enter in. We are constantly wrestling with how do I shape my worldview such that I have more of a biblical worldview. All of us have a worldview and all of us have been shaped by the worldview of the culture in which we live in. In other words, how we view reality. We live in a materialistic worldview that basically denies that there's a spiritual realm. We have to wrestle with that. Because we have a tendency of viewing things from that uh, unbiblical worldview. So there's a philosophical gap. And the Bible, obviously, gives us a biblical worldview that we need to renew our minds constantly. So these are the major gaps that we will try to bridge. We will deal with some of these in some detail by way of principle in themselves. Uh, we'll deal with a linguistic principle. We'll deal with a historical principle, cultural principle, literary principle, even a supernatural principle. We'll talk about those as we get through. I use the illustration of the Supreme Court the main function of the Supreme Court, as we said in the introduction, is to interpret the Constitution. We will be utilizing similar principles in relationship to the Bible. And I even showed you a problem in interpreting the Constitution that I think our nation is wrestling with right now. So the need is whenever there's... Communication, there's always a possibility of not understanding. So hermeneutics gives us the tools to help us understand. 
Hermeneutics, secondly, helps us to bridge the gaps that are inherent. And as Jim's pointing out, you can't look at the facial expression of Paul as he's communicating. So that's a gap, as well as all the others that we looked at. We need to have some guidance and principles that help us bridge that gap. There's also within ourselves the danger of subjectivity. This is just inherent in our nature, who we are. A hermeneutics attempts to overcome that subjectivity, giving us a process that's objective and outside of us as ourselves. Our tendency by nature is to suppress the truth. That's Romans 1, verse 18. It's mankind in general. And the unbeliever suppresses the truth to the point that he convinces himself that there is no God. But that tendency doesn't leave the moment we we trust in Christ. We need to constantly overcome that. Hermeneutics helps us to do that when it comes to interpretation. And there's also a need. The bottom line of the Bible, we're going to spend a whole series of sessions on application, or a series of hours on application. And your application is affected by your interpretation. So to properly utilize Scripture, this is the point where you want to live it out. To properly do that, you need proper interpretation, and that interpretation will guide you also in application. Yeah, God does not want us simply to know intellectually His Word. In fact, the emphasis of Scripture, you don't even know His Word until you begin to live or practice His Word. That's inherent in both the Hebrew and the Greek words for knowing. Ginosko is the idea of knowing through experience. There's actually two Greek words, and Ginosko is a common one in the New Testament. So this is the need for hermeneutics. Yeah. Um, that last slide, you kind of touched on it, but I just felt concerned that to overcome subjectivity, you briefly mentioned the unbeliever. But at the same time, uh, we live in the devil's world. This is the devil's world. Yes. The devil rules this world. And if it's not straight from Scripture... Everything else we hear in the world is from the devil. And so really that is a need. Absolutely. It's very, very key. Yes, absolutely. That's why it's on the slide there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think that into the way you wrote. (laughs) Yes, very good. So that's your description, that's your need. Let me give you a thumbnail history. And like I said, what I want to do in the early part of the course, is get enough hermeneutic foundation in your hands so that you have an idea of what we're dealing with hermeneutically so that we can get directly into actually studying God's Word. So I'm I'm going to give you the principles first, and we'll skip things like history and do them at the end. That way it fits in better in terms of the practical working out of the course. But let me briefly overview the history and give you the highlights of the history of hermeneutics. It has a history of its own. And there are particular periods of time where certain things came up that affect interpretation. And it begins even in the Old Testament. 
I've got a date here, but obviously hermeneutics, I mentioned, began in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? So there's always the issue of interpretation, but in terms of developing a hermeneutical system and where we actually have some mention of some aspects of hermeneutics, I'll give you a historical situation towards the end of Israel's history, about 460 B.C., where even before that, however, you know, there's issues, but a particular situation at that time, you might begin what we would describe as a Jewish period of interpretation. And Judaism developed a whole system within itself. It had some very good aspects, but it also had some negative aspects. And remember, by the first century, some of those negative aspects be- began to become dominant. Can you tell you about things like their extra rules for Sabbath and those types of things? Yeah, uh, tradition was a, it was an issue. Allegorization was an issue in the first century amongst Jewish interpreters. Uh, Jesus had some conflicts with the interpreters of his day. In fact, there's some passages that we'll look at that mention some of that. And that goes all the way to about 550 A.D., this Jewish period. So we'll talk about some good things that came about. There were also some, what we would describe as literalists. In other words, those that would utilize some of the principles or many of the principles that we will develop or we will utilize. So there's the Jewish period. We'll look at that period. There's also what's called the patristic period that was highly influenced not only by the hermeneutic of the apostles, and by the way, the the apostles are an illustration of a hermeneutic that they derived from Jesus Christ that we want to utilize. In fact, there is a basis for the hermeneutic that we will utilize in Jesus Christ and that of the apostles. I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But there's also a patristic period. This is after the apostolic period, from about 95 to about 590, thereabout. And again, these dates, it's not like, you know, they just radically, something changed there. There's usually a gradual change. But the patristic period was highly influenced by the Jewish interpreters. And in fact, the church move to allegorization began in this period of time, which is contrary to our hermeneutic, allegorization. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. That began in this patristic period, primarily Origen, church father, who developed his allegorization primarily from the Jewish allegorists. So it didn't just come out of nowhere, it came out of the influences that affected him. We have a period called Middle Ages. Probably the prominent hermeneutic there was what we would describe as a hermeneutic of tradition. The Roman Catholic hermeneutic, which is somewhat different from ours. So we'll look at some things that happened in that period of time. There were some also positive things as well. Throughout all of these periods, there have always been those that have utilized a hermeneutic close to the hermeneutic that we are using. And in fact, the hermeneutic that we use comes out of what we believe are the beneficial principles of all of these periods. The Reformation, you ought to think of the Reformation 
more in terms of a reformation of hermeneutics rather than a reformation of simply spirituality. Because it was the hermeneutic turning that led to the conversion turning. And we'll talk about that. A different hermeneutic. They broke away from a Roman Catholic tradition hermeneutic which was also highly allegorization in the Catholic system, the Reformers actually developed what we would call the Protestant hermeneutic or what we utilize. Make sense? And then you have the post-Reformation period where the church took different paths where you don't have a single hermeneutic. You have kind of several hermeneutics running in parallel. It's about the end of the 18th century. And we have the modern period where anything goes. And throughout all of these periods, we have what we would describe as the grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic, or more commonly, literal. And I'll give you more detail on these towards the end of class. Along with this history of hermeneutics, there have developed different hermeneutical approaches different approaches to hermeneutics. And let me give you a thumbnail sketch of these. The antithesis, you might say, to the hermeneutic that we are using is called allegorical. And it's still elements of it are still utilized today. The allegorical method of interpretation. Now, this is very prominent. It, it began during the patristic period, and it was very common during that uh, Middle Ages period of time. And probably no one exclusively used an allegorical approach. But the allegorical approach infects or affects, maybe is a better word, a lot of interpretation even today. And the essence of it, uh, Bernard Ram in his hermeneutic text says... He defines it. The name of his book is Protestant Biblical Interpretation, I think, or something along those lines. He gives us a good foundation for the hermeneutic that we use, but in his book he defines the allegorical method as behind the obvious and normal or literal meaning is the real meaning of a passage. Now, I'm not going to give you the details of this. We'll go into some detail and talk some more about it towards the end of class. So I'll give you some others as well. But these are the main ones. An allegorical approach. Some, even in evangelical churches, tend towards this. Finding a meaning under the literal meaning. That's allegorical. There's no basis for it in Scripture, I believe. Now, allegorization is not bad in and of itself. And I'll give you some examples. Um, What's the name of that book? Um, Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. Christian writer, excellent book. But what does Bunyan do? He tells you that he's using allegory. So it's a legitimate literary form. But what happens in interpreting scripture, if the author doesn't tell you that he's using allegory, then you should not allegorize. That's the whole point. We want the author's intended meaning at all points. So that's allegory. I understand what you've written up there. 
Are you saying Ram is defining, defining oracle, or that is his position? No, 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 no. That's that's not his position. Okay. He is defining it in his book. In other words, he's describing it, and he says some other things to discuss it. No, Ram would. He's. We get a lot of our principles that we utilize from Bernard Ram. Right. Right. Well, there have to be a lot of subjectivity. In, oh, in that is that true? Absolutely. That that's that's the yeah. the main failing of the the allegorical yeah, approach. I could just say, well, what the real meaning is. Yeah, and right, and you can do the same thing exactly. And when we talk some more about it, one of the points that we'll make is that none of the allegorists agree. Yeah. So your point is exactly right on. So that's the allegorical method. It's actually what we would describe as a form of, remember the word exegesis? Well, the counterpart to that is eisegesis. Exegesis, there's a, a Greek preposition, ek, uh, and it's just very common. It just has the idea of something out of, it has the idea of out of, so exegesis is what you're trying to do is bring out from the scriptures the meaning. Letting the scripture speak. Eisegesis is another Greek word which has the idea of in or into. And it, it has the, in terms of eisegesis, it's reading a meaning into the text that's not there necessarily. In other words, me reading a meaning into the text. You want to avoid that. That's a violation of the grammatical historical contextual method. So eisegesis is an interpretation, this is by definition, by the way, Random House, an interpretation especially of Scripture that expresses the interpreter's own ideas, biases, or the like, rather than the meaning of the text, or what I would add, rather than the intended meaning of the original author. So it's the antithesis, it's the opposite of what we want to attempt to do. The allegorical method is eisegesis, reading things into the text that are not there. Now we need to guard on that, none of you would be allegorists, but all of us have the tendency to put into Scripture things that we want there, rather than what is actually there, right? Except for you. you, you yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> no, the joke I made was doing myself a course on eisegesis. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, all of us are natural eisegetes. <laughs> this is our tendency. Maybe some more than others, but... <laughs> Okay, so we want to exclude eisegesis. There's your Greek word, in or into. And what we want to do is exegesis. And the Greek word ek is out or out from. And the out of is from Scripture. Or what God intends or what God has written. Tendency is to read things into the, the text that are not there. So then... Does it apply to Bibles that paraphrased? Is, is that? No, a, a paraphrase, the author lets you know that he's paraphrasing so that you're alerted 
that what he's doing is he's giving his best understanding, his best exegesis. But you need to keep in mind that this is the author's interpreting. He's adding interpretation to the translation. Like the good news, is, I'd recommend the good news because it's a good, easy Bible for some new believers to read with the understanding that it's it's not a translation, strictly speaking, it's a paraphrase. In other words, the author has put, has added some explanatory words to help understand, so he's interpreting to some extent. That's the nature of a paraphrase. The difference is the, the, the author of a paraphrase is making that clear, but that's his purpose. He's trying to say the same thing, only simple. He's trying to explain, but in the process of explaining, he's adding an interpretation. He's not translating, strictly speaking. Anything that he interprets, you need to weigh and see, did he do a good job? And if he did, then fine, that's great. All teaching, everything I do, I exegete the text, then I try to communicate it, but I encourage everyone to check what I do, and if what I say is is contrary to... What scripture teaches, let me know, because I want to revise what I teach. Secondly, besides allegorization, there is a very prominent hermeneutic. I've been alluding to it all along. We would describe this as liberal, or another word would be rationalistic interpretation. The essence of it is that reason overshadows revelation. Now, in our hermeneutic, we don't have a problem with reason, but reason comes out of the minds of man, and we need to evaluate whether or not that is, if I may, reasonable. We want to use reason. We will use reason, but it should be under the guidance of revelation, and revelation is prominent. The liberal puts reason over revelation. And he calls his interpretation scientific because he puts the Bible through a naturalistic grid which is not necessarily scientific. We're going to use a scientific method which I think is more scientific than the liberal. Make sense? Reason overshadowing revelation. So what the liberal does, and I'll expand this some more, but let me just briefly. Anywhere you have something that you can't explain in naturalistic terms, like miracles, they try to come up with an explanation in a naturalistic way to explain them away. For example, the miracle of Jesus walking on water, they would say, well, obviously, Jesus was walking on a sandbar, There's probably six inches of water, and the disciples looked at him, and they thought he was walking on water, and that's what they recorded. That's what they observed, and that's what they recorded. All right? It's a little bit harder with uh, turning H2O into one of the most complex molecules in all of the universe, water into wine. They would be the ones that say... They explain away miracles, basically. They would say, or they may believe that Jesus never died. They believe he died, but they've they distorted the relevance. They would deny resurrection. They would say he, he we, was wound or whatever it is. The term that well, not, not so much that. Uh, 
We stress the bodily resurrection of Christ. Liberals believe in a kind of a spiritual resurrection. It's more of an idea than it is a, an actual bodily resurrection. And it's based on the hermeneutic. And by the way, it's called rationalistic because of the emphasis on kind of intellectualizing scriptures to the point that it denies things like miracles and, in fact, denies a lot of supernatural things. So what would they say about the virgin birth? They deny the virgin birth. Yep. Just deny it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that's interesting because it, it goes back to the appetites of the flesh. And I think one of the clear appetites of the flesh is pure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's prominent in the liberal approach. In fact, that's a priority. That's a control, controlling principle in the liberal hermeneutic. That's why it's radically different from our hermeneutic. And you need to be aware of that in discussing things with liberals. They're coming from a totally different place. Their presuppositions are different, which dictates their hermeneutics, which dictates their exegesis, which ends up affecting their theology. Remember the pyramid there? Okay, we're ready for the essential principles and we've run out of time. <laughs> uh, let's get started. And I'll just describe the beginning of it. We will not utilize allegorization. In fact, we will attempt to avoid it at all costs. We will avoid the liberal or rationalistic approach. Ours is called grammatical. Why? Because it's going to focus on the laws of grammar. It's grammatical, historical, because it uh, recognized the importance of history and the Bible, which is absolutely linked and absolutely essential. And it's grammatical, historical, contextual, in that context is the determiner of meaning, always. Or, more simply, and sometimes referred to as literal, literal interpretation. And we'll distinguish, we're not talking about literal in the sense that it denies metaphors or figures of speech. And in fact, we will develop what I describe as a metaphorical principle. That'll be one of our 15 principles that we'll look at. A metaphorical principle. And within that principle, we have guidelines for interpreting metaphorical language. And the Bible is full of metaphorical language. So we don't deny the existence of metaphorical language. We call it literal in the sense that that's the predominant approach. And it's a simple way of describing it. By literal, we mean, and this is Webster's definition, based on the actual words in their ordinary meaning, not figurative or symbolic. In other words, don't introduce symbolism or don't introduce figurative language if it's not intended. Now, if the author intends to use a simile, he will give you clues that he's doing that, but then you interpret appropriately. That's the literal approach. Or, in Ram's book again, the basic, in other words, the ordinary way that we approach communication, 
The basic, customary, socially designated meaning, normal, according to the received laws of language. In other words, the way we normally try to communicate with one another. I'm trying to communicate to you, and I want you to take what I say literally. I don't want you to impose upon what I'm saying meanings that I don't intend. That's what we mean by literal. And if I use a figure of speech, I want to give you enough clues to let you know that that's what I'm doing. And that's what the biblical authors are doing. And we want to approach them in that way. That's what we mean by literal. And again, just a reminder, determining meaning based on the laws of grammar, facts of history, framework of context. The defense of it, or the basis of it, however you want to, you can retitle this slide here, the defense of this approach very quickly, and we'll stop here. This seems to be the approach of the New Testament writers. Jesus seems to use a literal interpretation when he utilizes the Old Testament. When he refers to Adam and Eve, when he refers to Noah, when he refers to the characters of the Old Testament, when he refers to events in the Old Testament, he seems to treat them as ordinary, real, historical events or persons. You don't see allegorization in the way Jesus treats Scripture. And it seems that the apostles followed suit, understanding how Jesus took the Old Testament in places like the book of Acts, and in the writings, they seem to treat the Old Testament like Jesus did. And they seem to utilize the principle that we use in terms of literal approach. Secondly, this is the ordinary way that we communicate with one another. This is the ordinary means of trying to convey one idea from our minds to someone else's mind. We want to be taken literally in the sense that we are talking about literal. In other words, the key here is what is the intent of the author? That's the usual practice. Everything else is imposed. Everything else is unnatural. The procedure or the hermeneutic that we will use builds in means of validating. We'll talk a lot about that. In other words, it gives you a means of validating your understanding. And if you can't validate it, then it's probably a shaky interpretation. So we'll talk a lot about that when we get into the actual practice of the principles. And obviously, as as you pointed out, the allegorical method does not have any of this. It doesn't have the validation. So your allegorization is as good as Mark's allegorization. Probably. Probably better, yeah, but, yeah, but not much, just, just a little bit. <laughs> Very good. And a fourth defense is before you can even approach any metaphorical understanding, you have to have the literal. Because all metaphorical ideas or meanings or intentions are based on real concepts, real literal concepts. Make sense? Even when you do have metaphorical language, metaphorical language has to have a basis on 
a literal understanding of something related to that concept. Okay. Next week, we'll look at the first principle. We'll talk about the linguistic principle. So we came to a real good stopping point. Marcy, do you want to close for us today? By the way, if somebody would does not want to close, let me know ahead of time and I won't call on you. Uh, I know Marcy loves to pray, and so I call on her. Lord God, I just I thank you for your grace and for providing us with intelligence, uh, providing us with the ability to uh, understand your word. I pray that you please be with each of us as we go our separate ways, that you would bring to mind regularly the things that we are learning during our private time of study um, that you would just infuse in us your word your love and just guide us as we go and always with the intent of molding us and making us more like your son Christ um, it's only because of him that we are even allowed to pray to you and we are so thankful that you gave him for us, to us, Amen. Okay, next week, as I said, we'll start on the linguistic principle. We won't get through all 15, but we'll see how far we can get next week. And then the next week after that, uh, we'll conclude it.